Hi folks, Tris here. Thanks for listening to Modern Prometheus, and thanks especially to all of you who have joined our Patreon. We don't run ads, so the whole podcast is supported by you. If you'd like to help out, head over to patreon.com forward slash Prometheus. Members get behind-the-scenes notes, early access, bonus episodes, and a lot more exciting stuff. Today's story is called Sleeper Service, and is for everyone who's ever felt far too tired. The train does not exist. More concerningly, the train has never existed. There is no track here. The street continues uninterrupted by bridge, verge, or fence. These are facts, as much as anything can be a fact. And they are causing George, who is right now stood on the bridge where he has watched the train roar past like an iron hurricane for the past two nights, some amount of distress. He unfurls the map he's carrying, pressing it to the edge of the narrow footbridge, and switches on the torch on his phone. There's no 4G here. The bridge is at the centre of a tiny dead zone. Again, some amount of distress. But in many other ways, his phone gives him the power of a minor deity, and he can let there be light. The map confirms the known facts. There is no train line. There is no footbridge. The road simply carries on, uninterrupted, not so much as an alley between the houses. The map is clear and unambiguous. Reality is deviant. The train runs south, the line soon becoming lost in the dark depths of the cut. To the north, the great columns of skyscrapers, the bright lights of the late-night bars, the mighty river. George mutters to himself, Don't set foot on the railway track then swings himself over the rail of the footbridge and does exactly that. It is three nights earlier and George can't sleep. He hasn't slept in months. He can't remember how it started, doesn't think there was any one single event that stole sleep from him. Just a general thickening of the air, a fuzziness in the head that left him lying awake trying to process some signal from the noise. He has, eventually, usually well past three in the morning, collapsed into exhausted unconsciousness. He rises again a few hours later, still exhausted. But sleep, real sleep, perchance to dream sleep, that might actually fill the bags under his eyes. This has become alien to him. There are 10,571 sheep in his brain. 10,572 now. Beside him, his wife rolls over, pulling a little of the blanket with her. He knows she's having an affair. He doesn't know who with. Maybe someone in her office. Probably not. She's too practical for that. Workplace romances are messy, even if romance isn't really involved. He imagines her catching someone's eye on the metro one morning, leading to a mad, impulsive fumble in an alley. No, an alley seems too reckless. She isn't that daring. Now he imagines the someone being one of the metro staff, someone who knows a deserted closet they can screw in before exchanging numbers and straightening skirts. Maybe. 10,584. He gets up, gently. 
His wife sleeps deep enough for both of them, and he has discovered he can't wake her if he tries, and goes for a walk. This has become a habit. It's the only time his head feels clear, away from the noise of the city day. Under the autumn moon, the streets are crisp, cold, and unlike his head, entirely free of sheep. He goes nowhere. He walks to no plan. At junctions, he flips a mental coin. The streets are comforting in their familiarity. Each one different, but the same. The city a winding fractal. As he walks, he wonders when Jackie stopped being in love with him. He wonders what she would do if she knew he knew. She wonders how he's going to deliver the project he's in theory been working on for a month, but in practice doesn't understand. And is that a bridge? Why is there a bridge here? Down a side street, the road stops, concrete bollards marking the point where cars may not pass. A few metres behind that, a set of steps rising into shadow. George stares at it for a few minutes, his breath rolling into clouds. Something feels wrong about it. Like it should be surrounded by the fuzzy edges that give away the green screen. He shakes himself, not entirely from the cold, and climbs the steps. There's graffiti on the metal panels that make up the sides, and untidy bindweed spills over one edge. He finds himself brushing the panels to see if he can push through. The bridge crosses a railway track. This is far more disturbing to George than the faint, painted-on feeling of the place, because he knows there is no railway near his house. Mild, ethereal foreboding can be ignored. Who among us hasn't walked across a too-quiet crossroads but shrugged it off with a spit on the curb. But it being late, cold, and a lot further from home than you thought, that's real night terrors, a far more pressing concern. He is turning to hurriedly retrace his steps when a light flares into existence on the track, rushing towards him. The train blasts through the night, and through the brightly lit window, George can see not seats, but rows and rows of beds. Attendants move up and down the carriages, and people sleep under crisp white sheets, resting their heads on large white pillows. George watches it recede into the distance, and eventually he remembers to find his way home. George does not work in the skyscrapers. George works in an office block made of five stories of concrete, in a style that would probably be described as brutalist, if only because people feel uncomfortable comparing buildings to mortuary slabs. Inside is a clutch of budget partitions dividing the open room into cubicles, lit by racks of fluorescent light. He has worked here for 20 years. Everyone is younger than he is. He's no longer entirely sure what he does. He has a report to write. He knows this. He's been working on it for a month. Well working. At this stage, he can't remember what it was supposed to be about, what data he was meant to be analysing, what conclusions he should draw. He just remembers it was important, his manager saying something like, we've got a lot of faith in you, George. He should have delivered a week ago. He thought he remembered writing, but the file is just a blank page. Right now, the report is being ignored. Instead, George studies Google Maps. 
He tries to remember where he went last night, tries to find the railway track. It isn't there. There are railway tracks, of course. The city is covered by a web of them, like they are a net pinning it down. There are, in fact, some closer to his house than he believed. But he cannot find the street. He cannot find the bridge. Morning, George! George's manager walks over, all oppressive alertness and slightly too baggy suit. He's got his hands in his pockets, a tie that's a bit too loud, like he's trying to prove he's human. Just thought I'd touch base, how's everything going? George gives a far more cheerful hello than he thought he was capable of, and tries to remember his manager's name. He doesn't bother to hide Google Maps. Research, is it? His manager is looking at his screen. Yes, uh, research for the... You know. Yes, how is that going? I don't like to push, but Upline are really starting to get eager to see it. When do you think you'll have a draft? George thinks about the blank page for a little too long. Okay, look, bring me whatever you've got tomorrow and we'll go through it, yeah? Don't worry if it's not fully polished yet. Let's just see what's there, what needs actioning. George manages a smile. He's having trouble focusing on his manager's face. Can't remember if this is a new thing. Can't remember what the man looks like. Still doesn't know his name. Absolutely, he says. Great, 10am, I'll ping over a calendar invite and we can circle back. His manager leaves and George screws his eyes tight, trying to throw off the weights on his brain. He closes Google Maps, brings up the empty report and the notes he's made so far. He doesn't know why he made any of them. There's a list of people who have held the position of secretary to the deputy fire chief since 1984. There's a graph of average river temperature through the year. There's a Twitter handle, Modem Prometheus. But when he checks it, it's nothing but a feed of random places and times. His eyes flick from one side of the screen to the other, over and over, like a sheep leaping a fence. A notification pops up in the bottom right of his monitor. The calendar invite has been pinged over, right on cue. You would think a place found on a late-night ramble, where the route was generated at random, roguelike from the city's Schrodinger's map, would be hard to find a second time. Not so. George is drawn to it like it has gravity. Maybe it does. We all have places that, for better or worse, we keep coming back to. There is no moon tonight. Instead, the streetlights reflect off the cloud cover, staining it a dirty orange and the knife-like chill has been blunted. George waits for the train. He wants to prove to himself that it was real. He did see it. It wasn't a dream. He is aware there is some irony in this for an insomniac. He has walked the bridge and has found the places where the mobile signal dies. A flat five paces from the bottom step on both sides. No tail off. It just cuts out like he's walked into a Faraday cage. He has stood on one side of that line, with his phone held in his outstretched arm, drawn it towards him and watched the bars cut from four to zero within the space of a millimetre. He has taken photographs of the bridge, the railway and the street sign. Canterbury Grove. He wonders what he'll say to Jackie if she wakes up to find his side of the bed empty wonders how many times she's done so and rolled over, gone back to sleep uncaring. 
At 27 minutes past one, the train huffs into view. There are no lights on in the driver's compartment. On the front, the flickering orange LED destination display shows not a station name, but a scrolling combination of dots and slashes. As it rolls under the bridge, George can see again the rows of beds, the people in them tucked up tight. It feels like some of the attendants have noticed him as they stand at the windows, but he can't make out their faces. He doesn't remember to take a photograph. The next day, at 10am, he is not in the office with the manager whose face he can't remember. Instead, he is called in sick and stands back again on Canterbury Grove. He walks the street up and down, holding his phone in front of him to check the map and the signal. There is no bridge. There is no train track. There is no spot the signal drains away like water down a plug hole. There is just the street. Nondescript houses on either side. At the far end, a small garden centre sits behind an old metal fence, thistles growing up from the verge. He checks the map. He's in the right place. There's no other Canterbury Grove for miles, and anyhow he recognises the houses. There's the one with the wind chime hanging over the front door. There's the one with the crack in the window. Everything is as it should be, except the train track, which, the map reminds him, should never have been there at all. George can't avoid the meeting forever. He gets into work the following day very slightly late, hunches in his chair like a soldier behind a rock. Still, ten minutes after he logs on, his manager is at his desk. Hi, George, could I have a quick word? George follows him into his office. From behind, George can actually look at him. The man is slightly taller than him, brown hair and a sensible trim. George finds himself looking for descriptors and comes up with none. He sits behind his desk and motions George to take the other seat. How are you, George? Honestly, George says. I'm not that good. Yes. George tries to focus on him, but again, his eyes just keep slipping away, skidding like they've hit an oil slick. I've been having trouble sleeping. Here's the thing, George. Obviously, we were meant to go through your report yesterday, and you were ill, which is, of course, not a problem. It happens. But I took the liberty of checking myself so I could get a feel for where it's at. George looks instead at the small silver executive toy that sits untouched on the desk, and the black and white photograph of the transmitter mast on the ridge, mounted tastefully on the back wall. When he tries to look again at his manager, his eyes immediately fuzz and slide away. And he realises it's not that he can't focus on the man, it's that he won't. He won't look at him, he won't see his face. George still can't remember what he looks like, and wonders if he ever knew. I think that might be best, don't you? George blinks at him. I'm sorry, I I missed that. His manager sighs, or George thinks he sighs. It's a sound like a dozen fluorescent lights flickering on. Take the rest of the week off, George. Then on Monday, we'll review your position. We'll call you. When his wife gets in, he's sat on the sofa, eyes closed, sleep still stubbornly distant. You're home early, she says. I think I was fired, George says. You were... Oh, George, what did you do? 
I've not been doing a very good job recently. Not sure I ever was. Well, what are we going to do now? You should go with your other man. He's probably better than I am. Or she, I suppose. I don't judge. George's eyes are closed, so he doesn't see Jackie's mouth drop open. What are you... It's okay. I know. I'm happy for you, really. George's eyes are still closed, so he doesn't see Jackie's mouth go from hanging open to a thin, sharp line or see her leave the room. He hears the door slam a few seconds later. It's for the best. He remains like this for some time, not moving, just staring at the back of his own eyelids. Finally, he gets up. He picks up the ordnance survey map he bought on the way home. He leaves the house and feels himself pulled, once again, to Canterbury Grove. Do you remember where we started? George swinging himself onto the railway track, not sure what he's looking for, but determined he's going to find it. Here we are again. The track itself is a gash cut through the city, separating streetlights and pulling apart roads. It's like someone took a sharpie and drew a line across the map. There are no signal lights, nothing to show what's here. It's almost entirely black. Almost. There is a tiny light bobbing along, hugging the right-hand bank. That is George, his phone now nothing but an expensive torch. For a while, he tried to trace where he was on his map. But this is remarkably hard when the line you're following isn't marked. All George knows is that he's walking towards the skyscrapers, still brightly lit, the red lights on their roofs twinkling like a constellation viewed from some alien world. Down here, in the cut, everything is muted. He can hear the cars, but it's like they're on a distant motorway. Even the sound of the gravel crunching under his shoes seems further away than it should be. He doesn't have to flip any coins here, mental or otherwise. There are no junctions, no choices to make. He can only walk forward, follow the line as it draws toward the skyscrapers closer and closer until they finally fill the sky. Here the track dives underground, into a tunnel lit with sporadic fluorescent lights. He hesitates, briefly. Out here he can dive into the bank if the train should come. In the tunnel, he will have no room. But he knows he's not stopping now, and it turns out he's not in the tunnel for long. An access door leads him into a corridor, bare grey concrete lit with more fluorescent bulbs, here spaced regularly as heartbeats. George can hear nothing except their quiet, hissing fizz. The first time he meets someone, he freezes, trying desperately to think of some reason he should be here, but they walk straight past him. He encounters more, holding clipboards or phones, but they all ignore him. He can't tell what any of them look like. Finally, the corridor ends, opening out onto a huge concourse. Steel beams are scattered throughout, running from floor to ceiling and George realises they are in the foundations of a skyscraper. The train is here, waiting at a platform. Smartly dressed attendants wait at every carriage door, and people are filing on. Dozens of people. Maybe hundreds. Old and young, women and men, 
Some suited, some in baggy jeans, some dreadlocks, some bald, some tattooed, some plain. There are people in hospital scrubs, people in wheelchairs, people in uniforms. George looks at them all and feels a wave of familiarity. They are all tired. Every one. Are you here for the train? A woman is standing next to him. She's wearing a train conductor's uniform and carries a clipboard. He tries to look at her face and his eyes bounce away. Where is it going? The same place everything goes. Away. George pauses. That sounds nice. So George finds himself climbing onto the train, being issued with a set of soft white cotton pyjamas and sliding between crisp white sheets. The smartly dressed attendants get on and the doors hiss shut behind them. George starts to wonder why something in his brain refuses to look at their faces. But then that thought slides away too. There's a gentle tug of pressure as the train pulls out of the station and George, unable to resist, falls asleep. Modem Prometheus is written by Neil Merton, performed by Kate Angier, and with music and production by me, Tris Oten. Check out my other show at lostterminal.com. It's got more science and less dread. If you like what we do, check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash modemprometheus. If you're not ready for that kind of commitment, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this right now. Our next story is about things left behind. See you at the next full moon. Sleep tight. <laughs>